from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Ew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about I'm not pen. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... If you could please rise and say with me the Pledge of Allegiance. It's like, finish your experiment by all means necessary. That's kind of all you need to know. Things go wrong and things get funky. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Like anybody else, I didn't totally love adolescence, but I actually liked high school. There were 750-odd kids in my class, each class, but it was only five minutes from home, and the size of the school actually allowed me to be anonymous when I wanted to and get away with things I might not have at a smaller place. I was friends with the freaks and the geeks and the popular kids. And after my sophomore year, this is the early 70s when they started giving kids anything they wanted, I no longer had to take PE or any more math classes. I also had some really great teachers, such as the one who taught me English my junior year in high school. He assigned us essays by Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and Walt Whitman. And he didn't teach Emerson and Thoreau as if transcendentalism was something that would be over our heads. He was smart, and he kind of assumed we were smart and held us to really high expectations and did all that with a sense of humor. Sir. Hi. I, I have to, of course, force myself not to call you Mr. Sedlacek. Oh. <laughs> well, Kurt, how are you doing? I'm, I'm well. I'm well. Oh, good. Good um, to hear from you. Uh, it's great to talk to you as well. Uh, it, has been, it has been a while. Um, you, you taught me 1970, 71 when I was a junior. Was that, I mean, was that your first teaching job? Yes, absolutely. Yep, I was fresh out of school. I graduated in 68. Mm -hmm. Huh. And, of course, therefore you were what? 25 years old when you were my teacher and seemed like this old, wise man. To oh. <laughs> well, that's, I, thank you for that. I think, I think that uh, if anything could have attributed to that, it would have been the reading that I did uh, in high school, I think. I read uh, Plato's Dialogues. I read Plato's Republic. I knew I was going to go to college, and I thought, well, I'd better start preparing. And so I got a list of 100 books that students ought to read to, to go to college. And so— wow. I started just going through those books. So that's interesting. So, so you you were the sort of self-taught intellectual of your small town in Nebraska. Well, uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't know about the intellectual thing, but I, then in that respect, I was self-taught. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. I, I remember Westside being a great place to to go to school, and, yes. I, and I and I felt like I was as well educated as a high school could be. I, my, my, this may be wrong. My memory is that some of the teachers were like. You know, it was 1970. There were growing mustaches and long sideburns and, and maybe wearing bell bottoms. Yep. You, 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 I remember, you, didn't you wear a, like a jacket and tie every day? Yes, that's right. Yes, I did. I wore a, wore a suit and tie jacket every day. Yeah. I was, I, uh, that's a, that's, that was a matter of uh, circumstance, I guess. Um, at the time, I was uh, more or less engaged uh, to my current wife and her sister's husband was an executive in a local uh, natural gas company. 
And uh, he would, as he outgrew his suits or, you know, got a little frayed collars on them or something like that on his shirts, why all of his stuff would sort of, sort of end up in my closet. And so I ended up with a pretty good uh, wardrobe, and that, that's what caused huh. that suit business. Huh. So you, know. you, well, it struck me, again, it added to my sense that this, this is a grown-up. This, this guy's a, oh. like my professor, <laughs> you know. Well, yes, I thought that that was proper attire. Yeah. You know, I really did. I I wore a suit and shirt at least uh, until the day I retired. Right. Um, and again, you were you were in your 20s. You're yes. younger than my children are now. Yes. Um, and so this is your first job. You'd been doing it a couple of years when 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 I got in, in your class. Um, uh, this is going to sound uh, uh, self-centered, but like – did you have a sense of like who, who's this sixteen year old kid? Was I was I like was I snobby? Was I what was I like? No, no, not at all, not at all. It was I I viewed you as I recall you as being a very uh, very serious, very sharp, alert, intellectually acquisitive huh. gentleman. Actually, huh. you know, and I thought in in your eyes I could see the processing going on behind your eyes as you took information in. Uh, you just, uh, just you know, you were associating it with other things. It was a tying together, I think, that made you such an exceptional student and led to your success. And, you know, your your what what the success that you've had, oh, well, the great success you've very, had. Very nice here. Now I think we're done. No, we're not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> End on a high note. <laughs> I, I I do, but the thing I remember again, in addition to your suits, was uh, th- there was a sense of uh, rigor that you conveyed and a sense of high expectations. There was a seriousness to the enterprise along with a sense of humor, you know? Is, is that yes. what you were intending? Well, no. Uh, well, that's <laughs> okay. just uh, that's, it, that's just the way it turned out. That's uh, the seriousness. I don't know where that came from. I when I when I graduated from high school, I had opportunities to play football at two colleges, huh. but I chose not to take advantage of those scholarships because I thought when I went to college, I was preparing for a profession, huh. you know, and I, I didn't think I'd make it as a professional football player, and I wasn't sure I wanted to. And so uh, I, I just chose the academic route and stayed with that, you know. And, yeah. uh, and as far as the humor goes, I think I got a lot of that from my from my dad. He was always joking around. Yeah. He had a lot of fun. Well, and it wasn't even so much that you were joking around, but there was, again, there was a, there was, it was a kind of glimmer in your eye. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you... It's hard to read philosophy seriously and take yourself seriously. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so we, we studied American literature. Um, uh-huh. the, the things that I remember sort of having my mind expanded by that you taught us in particular were, were Emerson's essays and Thoreau's essays, Walden and, yes. and uh, On Civil Disobedience. Uh, yeah. One of the things is that it wasn't just, let's read this book and analyze this and it's literature. It was, it was also a course in ethics and philosophy and morality. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to carry the, you have to, I think you have to carry everything to the level of personal values or else there really isn't any value in reading literature because literature in its finest sense is a reflection of the culture in which it's written. And uh, that's why you have to have some distance between the work of art and the culture. You have to have some chronological distance to be able to get a sense of, of what's really valuable. And it's valuable because it expresses the current culture and it leads at the same time. It sees what's coming down the yeah, road. Well know? said. But what have you been doing for the last 44, 44 years? Oh, gosh. Well, uh, teaching a lot in school. Uh, you know, the frustrated English teacher always wants to get involved in writing. And so I started a novel in 1996. Have, have you kept up your writing? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I finished the 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 thing I started in 1996. I finished this last winter finally. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's really it's really an exercise in growth. You know, it really is, and it's so much fun to say at the beginning of a day, okay, this is what I'm going to get done in this chapter, and uh-huh. and by the third sentence or by the third bit of conversation, you have your characters running off into an entirely different part of the forest, you know? <laughs> yeah. One always hears authors say, well, the characters took off on their own. There was nothing I could do. Yeah. Until you do it, you don't understand. That seems like some fakey <laughs> thing, yeah. but it's, there's a truth. What is, what is, your, what is this novel? What, what is the setting? What is the basic Oh, story? well, you know, the, the first novel is always about your past. And so yes. it's set in the- So 19- it's your buildings, Roman? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's set in the nineteen nineteen fifties in Nebraska, and uh, uh-huh. it really it's about one one person's failure and another person's growth from that failure. Husband and wife, the husband fails. It's it's you know they're they're growing out of the sort of mythology that you have to that you have to be uh, a self sustaining sort of uh, wealthy farmer to be successful, and uh, uh-huh. they're growing into the business about personhood. Well, uh, when you when you decide you're finished enough to have other people read it, I'd love to read it. Oh, you're kidding! That would be a grand thing. It would be my really my pleasure. Oh. Um, uh, Gary, this this has been a, a, a huge pleasure, and uh, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, tell you that uh, you know you made a huge difference in my life. Well, I'm so happy. You know, that's the goal of every teacher. That's the bottom line: is to is is to help. People understand something better than they understood it before, and they use that understanding and carry forward. And that's I'm I'm so happy that you found something in in a class that that I was the administrator of <laughs> to to move forward with. That's a great thing. I did indeed, and uh, thanks. And I uh, can't wait to read uh, your your opus. Oh well, thank you. I'll be happy to send it to you. Great, thanks, Gary. Yeah. Bye. Bye. I talked to Gary a year ago, and as promised, he did send me that manuscript, which I just finally finished reading. And I was delighted to find that it's a lovely piece of writing, a surprising story about regular Americans, but in this very singular place and situation, and a novel of ideas. It's terrific. It reminded me a little of the novels of Annie Prue and Richard Russo. Here's hoping that Gary finds a publisher and then... You can read it, too. Mr. Sedlacek really was a great teacher, and we were there with him day to day for a year, which brings to mind one of the other jobs in education that has always seemed really awkward and thankless. It's being a substitute teacher. Nicholson Baker is a braver man than I. He's the author of lots of acclaimed books, including the great novel Mezzanine and House of Holes, and his recent history of World War II, a nonfiction book called Human Smoke. His latest book, which was just released in paperback, is called Substitute. It's about his stint as a substitute teacher in the state of Maine, where he lives. One day, he's assigned to teach a middle school English class. As you might imagine, it doesn't go so well. It was April Fool's Day at Laswell Middle School. You're Mr. Monette today all day, said the secretary, Elaine. 
Mr. Manette's room was in Team Ganges, and he taught eighth graders language arts. At the lockers outside room 83, Wyatt, with an orange Superman logo in his shirt, saw me and froze. Wait, are you subbing for Mr. Monette? I said I was. Yes. He pumped his fists and did a little dance with his friend, who was wearing a cape. No real work for them today. I found the staff bathroom and blew my nose and tried to wake up. Students are working on a unit on conflict in short stories, Mr. Monette's subplan said. Their rough drafts should be completed today, and their final drafts are due tomorrow. I cleared some space at the desk and poured some coffee from a thermos. Prentice sat down near me and stared into space. How are you doing? I asked. Did you get enough sleep? No, he said. Me neither. It was homeroom, so I didn't have to teach anything. Hey, Mr. What's-Your-Name, said Bethany, dressed as Wonder Woman. A teacher came by. It's superhero day, she explained. Some of them have chosen to dress up, so that will create a stir. Yes, it's Spirit Week, said Marielle. We raise money. Right now we're raising money for a school in Cameroon. I asked how the superhero outfits related to that. We have to bring in a dollar if we want to wear an outfit said Marielle. She rubbed her finger. I burned myself. Toaster accident, I said. No, ironing, said Marielle. The PA lady came on. Good morning. If you could please rise and say with me the Pledge of Allegiance. We rose. We said it. The lunch menu was hot buffalo wing wrap-it-ups with shredded cheese, brown rice pilaf, romaine and tomato mix, carrot coins, chilled apple juice, and milk choices. Milk choices. There were always milk choices. She read the names of the artists of the week. And here's another list of students who will receive a super student award due to their considerate and kind behavior to others. There were three boys and four girls. Congratulations to these students. Wouldn't it be excellent to hear your name read on this announcement, too? Then the president of the student council made an announcement. Good morning, LMS. Today is superhero day. I am excited to see all the costumes people brought in to wear. He described the private school in Cameroon that was the recipient of superhero money. There are 140 students in the school. The students get two meals a day plus their education. The money raised by middle schoolers would pay for a storage tank for clean water, he said. There is no running water at the school. Students have to carry water down the street in buckets. The first block students filled the room, and there were a lot of them. I remember you from science, said John. I wrote my name on the board and waved my arms and shouted and got the class to look up. I guess you're thinking about conflict today. Conflict in short stories? A quiet girl nodded. Her name was Bailey. I said I didn't understand what conflict was and why we needed to look for it. I don't understand it either, said Bailey. She had a photocopy of Poe's The Telltale Heart on her desk. I said, 
So Bailey's reading The Telltale Heart, which is about the scary heart that's beating and all that. What's the conflict? Shelby raised his hand. He chopped him up. That's something that happened, I said. It's person versus person, said Aaron. I see, it's a fight, I said. Melissa raised her hand. It was person versus self. That's what they say, right? It's person versus self, I said. I guess you're right. The class went back to talking. I looked down at the subplans. I had nothing to offer them. Somebody started noisily sharpening a pencil. That's Nicholson Baker reading from his nonfiction book, Substitute. Coming up, turning a high school transgression into a life lesson. You feel like a fraud all the time anyway, so to actually be one felt in some ways liberating. The comedian Aparna Nancherla finally comes clean. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. These days, it's really not enough anymore for kids who want to get into a good college to just get good grades and good test scores. Everybody is rushing to participate in after-school programs and summer programs and science camps and, and, and to be fencers and to do volunteer work building homes in Tanzania just to show college admissions people how focused and passionate and ambitious they are. Of course, some high school kids are authentically motivated in those ways, and some have greatness thrust upon them such as Aparna Nancherla, who was in high school in the late 90s, way before she became a comedian. She told her story of entering a high school science competition at a live event I hosted with our friends from The Story Collider. The Story Collider is a great event series and podcast where people, scientists as well as non-scientists, tell stories involving science that are both entertaining and true. Here's Aparna. I've never told this story before, so I'm just going to, here it goes. Uh, I'm glad I did it, partly because it was worth it, but mostly because I never have to do it again. Uh, Thus spoke Mark Twain, and his words can apply to a lot of things in life. He could be talking about bungee jumping, uh, paper mache, going off of heroin, like many things fall under that umbrella. In my case, it applies to high school, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Yeah. A lot of people have a tough time in high school, and I feel like the few people who cruise through, like they're looked at askance later in life as if to say, oh, so that's too bad, you peaked so young. Uh, yeah, I feel like Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole book about it. So, so anyway, just to give you a little background, I grew up in Northern Virginia, and uh, at the end of eighth grade, basically, I had gone to private school for the past four years, and it was like a fancy private school, uniforms, Christmas play, the works, and I was all set to go to high school, same school, I uh, had my, you know, carefully cultivated social circle, I was ready for a lax dress code, I was ready to go, but there was one little catch. 
in my county, there was this very fancy public magnet school that specialized in science and technology, and uh, you had to take a test to get in. And I had no interest in taking the test, but my parents are both first-generation immigrants from India and doctors to boot, and it's not a stereotype if I say it. Uh, so don't even think it. But they were like... They were like, just take the test, you know, like you don't have to go, just take it to prove you got the stuff. And uh, and then if you get in, then you can decide if you actually want to go. So basically they were like, you can burn that bridge when you come to it, but just take the test. Uh, so I took it because, you know, nothing motivates a teenager more than uh, than the to commit to something after boldly pronouncing something like, fine, I'll do it. So I was like, fine, I'll take this test. You want me to take this test? I'll take it. Uh, and the weird thing is I got into the school like with no, like I didn't want to get in, but, you know, I was a good student. I will admit that, but not for the right reasons. Like I wasn't passionate about school, but it was more just like something to do. So that's why I was a good student. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I do remember on the test, like the essay question was just, do you think computers will ever become obsolete? And I remember it was the first time I answered an essay question by creating like the shakiest thesis of all time and just like meandering around an answer and articulating nothing of actual substance, which I feel like is a very valuable skill as an adult. Like we're, we're huge fans of that. Uh, this was really a breakthrough in that way. Um, but also, this was the 90s, so was, you know, the iPhone was just a twinkle in Steve Jobs' eyes. None of us knew. Uh, and when I got in, my parents, of course, changed the game again. And they were like, well, you got in, you know. Just go for a year and then see how you feel. I did that little parent twist. Uh, so like many, you know, second immigrant children before and after me, I was just like gently but firmly pushed towards my bright STEM future. Uh <laughs> And uh, just a note about the school, like there was a very, uh, you know, hard curriculum, like a lot of the classes were already like set for you all your four years, especially in math, science and technology. And while you could test out into like a higher level for most kids, it was uh, biology as a freshman, chemistry as a sophomore, physics as a junior, and then the coveted geoscience as a senior uh, paired with like an intensive lab that you also had to pick. And I only bring this up just to to give you an idea of like how academically rigorous this school was like it was basically like there were a lot of eggheads at my school and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense like I mean there were like some really smart kids like some of them didn't have the social skills to like remember to wear two shoes every day <laughs> but they had like the ability to create a robot that would do it for them like they, they, they were very advanced uh, and the point is, like, a lot of kids, they knew what they were doing there. They belonged there for a reason. I didn't really feel like I knew how I fit in. And so one of the first big assignments as a freshman uh, for biology class was that you had to enter a project in the science fair as a group. Like, the science fair was uh, optional your, the rest of your high school career, but as a freshman, it was mandatory. And uh, they put together groups, like most school projects, by random chance. And my group was a very uh, hodgepodge mishmash. Like, I would say there was one girl who was very popular in my group. Let's call her Kelly. Uh, and then there was a very responsible achiever girl, let's call her Michelle. Uh, oh, wait, oh, wait, I guess that makes me Beyonce. That's weird. Um, uh, but, 
Yeah, that's weird, but I feel like it fits, you know. I, I, I think that actually it works out well. Because um, even then I did consider myself an outlier of sorts, you know, like a, like a rogue star that people weren't ready for yet. Uh, so the topic we chose, uh, which you've heard about a little tonight already, was environmental science. And this was not a time yet in which, like, climate change was, like, hashtag trending. Like, this was an earlier time in environmental science. Like, you know, acid rain had been a hot-button issue for a while. People tried to save whales and the rainforest and whales again. Like, it, it, you know, peace frogs were on shirts. But it, it wasn't, like... It wasn't as motivated as it is now, but we were like, you know, the earth matters. So we picked basically for our project, um, me and uh, Michelle picked the project and then Kelly worked on being popular, which is a full time job. Uh, And what we did for the project was we specifically looked at how aluminum nitrate, which is a chemical compound that's found in like fertilizer and a lot of, uh, you know, run chemical runoff, like how it affects uh, populations of organisms in water. And the organisms we chose to go with were paramecia for our experiment. Uh, if you're not familiar with paramecia, they're a one-celled organism, uh, similar to amoeba in that they're completely dispensable and considered free range for any type of scientific experimentation. <laughs> Uh, so our project was pretty straightforward. Basically, we had these solutions of paramecium in water, and then every day we would add a little bit more aluminum nitrate and see how the populations were affected. And uh, and you're like, oh, how did you get paramecia? That's a great question. Uh, like most one-celled organisms, we got them from a biology catalog uh, order, or you could also get them on Tinder, I guess now. Um, <laughs> another popular place. But... The one little sort of hiccup in in the research was that there was like a holiday break in the middle of like uh, our experiment. So basically one of us had to take the data home and and do the project from home. And we were like, Kelly, you haven't really carried your weight until now. So maybe you'd take it to your house. Uh, And, you know, Kelly's game, she, she, in her favor, she did agree to do it. But then the paramecia never actually made it to Kelly's house because uh, she left them outside during tennis practice and I'm sad to say they all perished in the cruel sun. Uh, and I would imagine the last conversation among them was something like, Phil, I thought the aluminum nitrate levels were bad, but this heat is oppressive. <laughs> and then the other one's like, yeah, Pablo, and to add insult to injury, I hate tennis. Um, I tried to add some diversity in my paramecia casting. So, you know, we reached a real impasse with our project. Uh, Our girl group had to have an emergency meeting, and there was not enough time at this point to start our project over again. The science fair was coming up too soon. And, you know, we couldn't forfeit this early in our high school careers with a gaffe this big. Uh, So, you know, like with the intensity of like a gathering of witches under the full moon, we were like, we can't tell anyone about this. So we were like, we're just going to use our earlier data and then extrapolate the rest. You know, because that's a thing you can do. Uh, And, you know, it's like, I know it was wrong. Like, we all knew it was empirically wrong. But it's like, what choice did we have? Like, if anything, we were kind of operating on the plus side of plus or minus scientific error. But you need that half. Uh, And... 
for some reason, we completely excused Kelly from any accountability. We were just like, yeah, it's very hard to maintain your position as a cheerleader. She was a cheerleader. Uh, you, you couldn't have known. Uh, so... <laughs> So even though we didn't want to work together before, now we were bonded together in this like sick, low-stakes version of I Know What You Did Last Summer, uh, <laughs> starring Paramecia. And, uh, you know, we swore secrecy among the three of us, and I hope the statute of li- you know, limitations is up on that, because here I am uh, talking about it pretty openly. But it's like, isn't that the last step of the scientific method anyway? It's like, finish your experiment by all means necessary. I feel like that is a step that you don't talk about. Uh, and the truly twisted part to me was that we took our, uh, our paramecia back to the lab, and then I kept adding aluminum nitrate every day, like a true psychopath. Uh, mad scientist, like, everything's going great. Uh, I was like, here I am. Where's my Nobel? But so, so then fate had a really weird twist in store, which was that, uh, so then we took our, our project to the uh, school science fair, and, you know, there were prizes in every category, and I don't know how this happened. Some way, somehow, we created a great cover story, I guess, because we got third place in our, in our, <laughs> I know, I know, that's really a testament to us, I think. Um, that's really what that is. And now it was like the stakes were even higher. Like we had to go to another level of science fair. And I was like, well, now there's really no way we can come clean because it would, it would uh, you know, a, type, a scandal this big <laughs> could unravel the scientific community as we know it. Uh, the only honorable thing to do is to go to the regionals, lie through our teeth, uh, boldly misrepresent ourselves confidently as the American way. Uh, <laughs> And of course, that's what we did. We went there. We told our story again. No one was impressed at regionals. We were like, thank God, we can just slink out of this and never talk about it again. I mean, we had like the blood of two orders of paramecia on our hands. Like, don't think we weren't up at night being like, I hope they're happy wherever they are. Uh, And so I guess, uh, you know, I've thought about this story often because it's not something I'm proud of. But I was trying to think, you know, what lessons can can you call here? And I think one of them is definitely like at the end of the day, pick a career where you can spin your lack of integrity into like a cheeky life lesson. That's a fun one. Um, you know, it's like what we did was very wrong, but I almost feel like because it was a group effort, it, it diluted our individual wrongness, uh, which, which interestingly enough is a principle in psychology, which I uh, later majored in and did a thesis in and did not kill any experimental or control groups because um, my subjects were humans, so that would be more serious, but... You know, you can cheat alone, but if you do it with other people, there's kind of the, there's a circle of trust where you're just like, we're in this together. And, you know, if you have perfectionistic tendencies, it's kind of like you feel like a fraud all the time anyway. So to actually be one felt in some ways liberating. Um, I was like, this is what I've been talking about. Uh, and in the end, I feel like science, despite its emphasis on like hard data and irrefutable proofs, is like is as subject to uh, the fickleness of human nature as anything else. But I feel like if you asked our paramecia, they'd just be like, "Go to hell." Uh, thank you.
That's the comedian Aparna Nancherla. She was one of the four excellent storytellers at our event with the Story Collider. Another was the comedian Wyatt Sinat, who you probably know from The Daily Show, where he was a correspondent for years. In high school in Texas, Wyatt volunteered at a science museum, where he was supposed to lead tours through an exhibit about the bad effects of drugs and alcohol. But then he discovered the exhibit had a driving simulator. To a 17-year-old, I didn't see it as much as a simulator as I saw it as a video game. (laughs) Because the way it would work, you would get in, and you would get in the car, and then you would punch in your gender and your height and your weight, and then uh, before you started driving, they would ask you, like, how many beers would you like? And so you put in a number, and then it asks you, would you like some harder alcohol? And you put in a number, and it kind of show you what you could choose from. And then it was like, how about some weed, some Coke? <laughs> Which I don't know how eight-year-olds knew all about that, but everything about it seemed like a setup to me. <laughs> but so you put all this stuff in, and then you get to drive, and then depending on how drunk or high you are, it affects how the wheel moves. Like the wheel will get loose and then it'll get like really stiff and the brakes won't work sometimes. And sometimes you put on the gas and it'll just floor it. And you really have to work really hard and pay attention so that you don't crash. And the moment that you would crash, the screen would just flash at you and you would get reprimanded with this message about the dangers of drinking and driving. And that would happen anytime you crashed whether you crashed after a minute or whether you crashed after an hour. Which I kind of feel like if you did it for an hour, I feel like you shouldn't get a reprimand. You, you should get like just a, like a whoosh, wow. Ugh. We got lucky. Let's not do that again. Also, let's maybe not drink so far away from home. That's the comedian Wyatt Cenac, who's co-starring in the new movie, I Do Until I Don't. You can watch a video of our entire live event with the Story Collider at pri.org slash studio360. Thanks to Krista Ripple, who produced that event. Studio 360. A few years ago, I went to Switzerland for a week to write an article about the Large Hadron Collider. It is that giant, miles-long subterranean particle accelerator that is really unlocking some of the secrets of the universe and might unlock more. The challenge for me as a writer who is not a scientist is to learn enough about the science of particle physics to then explain that to a general audience and also not make the scientists that I interviewed when they read the article, think I'm some kind of idiot. All of which is part of the impetus behind a program called Dance Your PhD. It is an annual competition, a decade old now, in which doctoral students in science explain their scientific findings through elaborate staged choreography. Every year, These young scientists submit videos of the dances they've created on subjects like supersymmetry and group coordination and meerkats and, say, dynamic control of chiral space, whatever that means. 
Umanajendra won the competition a few years ago with her entry called Plant Soil Feedbacks After Severe Tornado Damage. John Bohannon is the creator and mastermind of Dance Your PhD and also a reporter for the journal Science. John, Una, welcome. Thank you. Hi, glad to be here. So, John, uh, where did the idea for Dance Your PhD come from? How did that spring into your head? Uh, It was a drunken New Year's Eve party in Vienna, Austria, where I was a foreign correspondent some years back. I I basically wanted to get a bunch of scientists to dance. Uh, We had a party. I was organizing it with a DJ friend. And um, I just had this sense that it was going to be dull, that people weren't going to really let loose. But I knew that they were really competitive and that most of them were PhD students. So I came up with this idea of forcing them to dance by making them compete with each other to explain their work without using words. You know, we, we did this thing, and I, I shot video of it with friends, and we put it on the web, and it just surprisingly took off. And people started emailing me from all over the world asking when the next contest is. Of course, there was no plan for a next contest, uh-huh. but, you know, the Internet had spoken. Um, and even though you were a foreign correspondent, you, you, you have and had then your Ph.D. In, in molecular biology? That's true. I'm a scientist by background. And your dissertation was what? On the evolution of bacteria. And until this night in Vienna, had you ever thought like, ooh, I want to I wanna perform this. I want to dance to this bacteria study of mine. <laughs> it had honestly never occurred to me. And uh, your, the dance you did was, was what exactly? My dance, if you can call it that, was essentially a conga line of me and a bunch of friends and other random scientists where we were supposed to represent the genes that are lined up in the operon of the bacterial genome that I was studying. And then a mutation happens in me, and uh, I start doing kind of a, a funky butt dance, <laughs> and uh, and then things get chaotic. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, now, I, I just hearing you describe it, I understand bacteriology a little better. Um, well, that's the, that's the idea. Um, that's kind of all you need to know. Things go wrong and things get funky. <laughs> words to live by. Um, now, Uma, I want to watch the video of your winning dance. There are subtitles um, explaining what's going on. But talk us through what is happening as it plays. Right. So here we are opening shot in an actual forest. Yes, we are in the Appalachian Mountains. This is footage that I took from my field site. And what's a field site exactly? The field site is where I would conduct um, my surveys and experiments. This is in the Chattahoochee National Forest. So now, now we're in a big studio, I guess? Yes, this is Canopy Studio in Athens, Georgia. And we see uh, one, two, three, four, five, six dancers on trapezes wearing green tights, and then some other dancers sort of writhing on the ground wearing brown, and then a, a guy standing absolutely still hanging from a trapeze in the back. Uh, Jeff is standing in the back. He's being the, the mature pine tree in this instance, and all the rest of us little seedlings are on trapezes. So you're, you're one of these several people on trapezes? Yes. We're all seedlings slowly growing. And the people on the ground are soil organisms. They're crawling, emanating sort of from the roots of the mature tree. So the people on the trapeze are have some green on them, and the people on the kind of writhing on the ground are 
are brown and there's some yellow stuff down there. Mm-hmm. Does all of that have represent some biological reality? Well, the yellow on the ground is representing roots and um, the green for the leaves and the seedlings and brown for the soil organisms. They're representing fungi and bacteria that are in the soil. Oh, I see. The folks who were on trapezes, um, those are my trapeze classmates um, who you know, have plenty of dance experience, though most of them don't really have much science experience. And the folks that are on the ground, the soil pathogens, um, they are my colleagues in graduate school who huh. have a ton of science experience, though not much dance experience. How interesting. So, it was a, so they, were, yeah. they were like different organisms in a way. They, indeed. But they all came together in the same ecosystem. So now a tornado has come. What is the tornado yes. doing? Tornado is, is hitting and uh, making the mature tree um, fall over and die, basically. And as wow. he dies, the, um, all the soil organisms that the... The fungi and bacteria that were on her roots, um, they're changing. They're sort of dying as well or becoming much less much less prevalent in the soil. And now the dancers on the floor in brown, the soil organisms ha- have retreated and the, and the seedlings up on the trapeze are, are s- stretching acrobatically upward. So now we've got the seedlings growing again. And because the mature tree has now died and the soil organisms are affected by the new environment, the seedlings are growing differently. Well, it's a, it's a lovely dance, and I understand this little bit of, of biology that I didn't before, so kudos again. Um, John, I assume it's not just you who watch all these videos and then decide, oh, Uma's the winner, uh, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I don't decide the winner at all. Um, I've got a um, an expert panel of scientists and people from the dance world, and, and they're looking for what? As I mean, it's not like a normal dance competition, certainly, or a normal academic competition. No, that's right. Um, I asked the judges to first score each dance on its uh, scientific merit, and then sort of put that aside, and then just look at it as a piece of art. And then there's a third score which is, now bring them together. How creatively did they bridge the two worlds of science and art? Um, If you're not used to performing, let alone putting a video on the Internet, which will forever be associated with your name, um, your tendency is to hold back a little bit and treat it a little bit as a joke, you know, sort of slyly winking all along. And the danger of doing that in art is that you're also asking the audience to just sort of not take it as seriously. Right. Are there are there scientific ideas that simply resist this? Like I don't know, theoretical physics. I um, in the beginning of this contest, I had the same hunch you did, which is that the more abstract uh, the idea behind a, a piece of science, mm-hmm. the harder it would be to translate. And in fact, I see no relation at all. Uh, some of the best dances have been um, totally arcane. It's like a magic trick. You you know that the rabbit of this you know, totally incomprehensible idea was in that box. And now, actually, it's not. It's actually in your head. Well, you know, I, I, I can completely get that. And also, and, and I've thought for a while as I read and am basically baffled by theoretical physics, 
I I often think, oh, th- they're already in the realm of metaphor and art when they call the thing super strings. Do you know? <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with jargon. And that was actually one of the goals of this contest was what happens when you when you don't just ask scientists to uh, drop the jargon, but you force them. You know, you right. basically say, okay, explain your work, and you're not allowed to use any words at all. Right. Now, I want to watch um, the winner of the competition from the year before um, Uma. This is by a PhD student named Cedric Tan, and its title is Sperm Competition Between Brothers and Female Choice. So Cedric, at the time, was working on a PhD at the University of Oxford on sperm selection. She told me that she liked Black Sabbath, so grew my hair and bought a leather jacket. Sperm selection doesn't just mean choosing a mate. In fact, I think African guinea fowls, they're, they're birds, as you can see. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he devised this sort of... Uh, oh, now we see a video are. of birds yeah, yeah. to remind us. Yeah, they're actual these, roosters. Yes, I get it. And, uh, and so he devised this really stylish <laughs> bird dance. And what he's uh, depicting is the part of mate selection that we're all familiar with. You either go out with someone or you don't. You, you have sex with one person or a different person. And that determines which uh, genes are getting into the next generation. Uh-huh. And now, in the video, there are a bunch of dancers wearing... Uh, swim caps and speedos. Now we're watching what's happening inside the body. And each of these guys is a sperm. And so you, now you see the egg, uh, by, represented by that woman in a giant ball. There's a woman rolling around in one of those giant, clear, plastic human hamster balls. And the the sperm men are, are bouncing off her enclosure. No, she'll never make up her mind Cause she's just the scenes to kind of go yeah, there's no doubt that this video got uh, extra points just for its production value alone. Yes. So there's some synchronized swimming of sperm surrounding the egg. And, <laughs> you know, essentially they're trying to figure out who's going to have a shot at actually fertilizing the egg. Here's the final moment. Yay, got in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Unlike Uma's um, video, there, there is a kind of mischievous comedic element um, to this dance by, by Cedric Tan. Oh, absolutely. Ced- Cedric uh, went completely the other way. He went to full wink. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is, is yeah. supposed to make you giggle all the way through. And, and Uma, uh, now two years later, uh, after you've, you've been the winner, uh, is, is this a thing that people who meet you and work with you know about you now and as you, you know, make your way in science? Yes, it is. People often will have, have, have seen my name um, w- associated with the Dancer PhD. Or if they haven't, then they will eventually know that I'm interested in science and dance because I'm continuing to do more science and dance. Oh, that's so cool to hear. That's really great to hear. For instance, I'm currently working on using folk dance to communicate some basic concepts in plant science. And by folk dances, you mean... Square dance? What kind of folk dances? Square dance is one of them. Um, There's an Appalachian-style folk dance that's very similar to square dance called Contra. I've also worked with some of these same trapeze dancers to bring other science dance to the Atlanta Science Festival, working in collaboration with some other fantastic science aerialists, even, 
um, in the Atlanta area. Hold on. Science aerialist? The, the, I'm, I'm, <laughs> we're, we're, as we're peeling back the onion, I'm finding new areas of science and art intermingling that I didn't know It's about. really amazing, yes. Wow. Well, you know, you're, you're fat, way, way too young probably to have ever seen these things. But when I was a little kid, they used to show us things in school, these Disney, beautifully made Disney cartoons about science that made kids think, oh, I didn't know I was interested in how the atom is created. But now that Goofy and Donald have shown me, I'm into <laughs> it. But so you're doing a similar thing. As you as you go further, presumably in academia, will you have you learned anything from this process that will make you a better teacher? Do you think? Uh, I I certainly think so. Definitely learning about how to use different forms and use different creative measures to try to get across concepts, and definitely practice in distilling down to a core message without taking away from the complexity of the science itself. Um, Uma and John, thank you both uh, so much. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. What a pleasure. I love that the Dance Your PhD contest exists, and this year's edition is open now for entries, but not for much longer. If you're a current PhD student, you've got until September 29th to enter. For inspiration, you can see the videos I watch at studio360.org. Matt Frassica produced that story. I see you, baby. And that's it for today, students. We will return promptly a week from now. Remember that Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. And will the following people please report to my office? Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Claude Gillette. This is your principal. You're dismissed. Get home safely. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, most journalists don't get to write their own headlines. But most journalists aren't John McPhee. The title is an integral part of the piece of writing, and therefore it should be written by the person whose name is the byline. The legendary New Yorker writer John McPhee, next time on Studio 360.